So happy new year to you this morning. Turn with me at this time, the beginning of this new year, to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. I want to take you to Colossians 4 to read about some living epistles, some living letters. I love this passage. I love this section of Scripture. I'm one of those weird preachers that likes the really obscure text that everybody skips generally. I believe, as as Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable to make us complete, to serve, to glorify God as we come to it, and we should never overlook one jot or tittle of it. So I want to begin here this morning. I want to start here for a lot of different reasons. I want to begin our new year together this morning with some final words from the Apostle Paul. And the final words here to to this church in particular at Colossae are the first words I want in your hearts and minds this new year as we enter into the ministry ahead of us at Sovereign Grace. I think these words are important because I think that the words we read here are the reflection of the Apostle's heart. And I believe it's the heart of Christ coming through. He's, he's giving thanksgiving to God for the work that's being done in the saints there at Colossae. In particular... He is thanking the Colossians individually for their partnership in the gospel. And as preachers and pastors, we should never neglect to do that. Without you, there would be no gospel ministry going on here in Ada, and you are an essential part of that. And so I think that the the Spirit-inspired words that we read here this morning reveal really how important every member in the body of Christ is to the lives of the pastors and the lives of the members So I think that this will encourage you. I hope it encourages you this morning in this new year by, I pray, opening your eyes to see reflections of yourself in the text we're going to read. I pray that as we read through this text, you'll you'll see how your life and your labor alongside others here in our church is, is like what's going on here at Colossae. It's being written down in God's book, in God's eternal book of registry. His church history book is still being written, and you're a part of it. And I pray that it will encourage you to know that your lives are just as significant as the lives of those that Paul commends here in Colossians chapter 4 at this closing of this letter. I think it's important for us to do that because the saints that are mentioned here are like you. They're living epistles, living epistles of Christ's power, his love and his grace. And I want you to be encouraged by that this morning. That's my goal this morning. I want to honor God for the work he's doing in you and encourage you to continue on in the work that he's called you to. So let's do this. Let's begin by first reading through the section. And don't flip out because normally I can't handle two verses. And I'm going to read a lot more than that. And we're going to go through it rather quickly and biographically, if you will, this morning. So let me begin in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, Paul's writing to the church. He's he's ending this letter to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, this is what I want you to do. These are my final words to you this morning. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to pray for us. I want you to be in prayer for us that God would open a door for us for the word. Then in verse 4, he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, receive him or welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What a, what a great way to end a letter. It starts in humility and it ends in praise and thanksgiving for all the saints and the work that God is doing through them. There in 2 through 6, Paul, Paul's final words and heart are really like being opened like a book to us. And we see the first page. And, and the first page of Paul's book is the, a humble heart. That's the first thing we read about. His humble heart is, is meant to produce personal and purposeful encouragement in this local church. I mean, just think about who this is that's writing this. The apostle of Jesus Christ. The writer of 13 letters of the New Testament. And he's praying and he's asking them to pray for him. He's exposing his love for them and his need of their, their continual work with him. He wants them to know how important their ministry is to him personally and to the work of Christ here corporately and then globally. In 2 through 6, he reminds us here of how important they were to him by asking them for help. Now, as a man, that's hard. As a, a man in authority, it's even harder. But not for a man who submitted to the great authority, which is Christ, the humble one. He's reflecting his Savior. And he is, he's saying to them, I know I am but a man, and Christ has given me a commission, and you're a part of the work that I'm engaged in, and so I need you to continue with me in prayer. We see that in verses 2 through 4. And I want you to pray that I'll be faithful in evangelism, 5 to 6. That's, that's astounding. Paul's asking for help in evangelism. This is the guy who was up on Mars Hill, right? And he preaches, and he teaches. People fight against him, but he continues on from city to city being persecuted. But he's asking that he would be faithful through their prayers. Pray for me to be faithful in the way I should speak. And then, as that part of the book sort of comes to an end, we begin to go into the rest of the biography here. Not of Paul's heart, but of the people's heart. That's what we see in verses 7 to 18. He's addressing... Eight key individuals here in this local church that greatly affected his ministry and his life personally. 
Now, as I said, reading through this section of Scripture is, is like opening up eight mini-biographies and getting a glimpse into not only the Apostle Paul's heart and love for this church, but the work that the people are doing in the church to minister to Paul himself. There are eight people here mentioned in particular. I'm sure there were more than that going on in the work there, but he mentions these because they were engaged in him in his ministry at that moment. But these eight people encouraged him. They, they shaped Paul's very heart and his ministry in this region. And what's amazing to me is for the majority of those that we read about in this section of Scripture, there are very few that you've ever heard about. These are the unsung heroes that he is actually highlighting here and saying these people are essential to my work here on earth and the gospel going forth. And here's what I want you to know as a church this morning. You are essential to our work here on earth and the work going on this morning. You are an essential part of God's redeeming plan to reach the lost here in Ada and the surrounding areas. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that I view all of you like living letters of the gospel. You reveal Christ's work in your heart, in your lives, in your actions, and even in the mundane things that you may not even think that we notice, but we do. And I just want you to be encouraged to know that every member of this church is important to your elders, our personal lives, and our corporate work with you here in the ministry. This is what I want you to understand as we enter into this new year. I want you to get this because we're going to go forward together at this point in 2021. And who knows what's coming, right? I mean, 2020, it's just a, that's a foggy mystery. And 2021 could be far worse. But I want you to know that we can go forward together in Christ. Because Christ said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And you were part of that work. And so what I want to do now is I want to open up these biographies to you this morning and kind of take a glimpse at each one of these people that are mentioned here. And let's begin by looking at Tychicus, which is a hard word to pronounce, right? Because I had to listen to the ESV app three times to get this right. I want to say Tychicus, but it's Tychicus. Paul begins here by pointing out the faithfulness of Tychicus in verses 7 and 8. Look at it again. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. In other words, he's going to give you an update. He's, he's a faithful man to do that. He says he's, he's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow diakonos, fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I mean, what a gracious act on Paul's part. He wants them to be up to date. He wants them to be encouraged by the work that their prayers are actually contributing to. He's saying, here's Tychicus, right? And Paul Paul's saying, I'm going to reveal to you the importance of this man. This man is a man who's marked by faithful dedication. And saints, we can say that of many of you here. Your lives are marked by a faithfulness and a dedication to the church and to serving Christ. And we're thankful for that. And Paul's pointing this out here because he's basically saying that this, this man is the, the faithful letter bearer. He's the guy who's going to carry this word back to them that he has been writing here in Colossians. He brought them this letter. He's faithful to do the work he's been engaged in. And what, what I think is amazing about Tychicus is this is about all we know about him. Okay? doesn't sound like a lot. One thing we, we don't see here is we don't see Paul saying about Tychicus... Tychicus is a very charismatic and gifted speaker. 
Tychicus is a, a powerful preacher. Tychicus is a phenomenal people person. He doesn't say any of that. He says something greater than that. He says he is a man who's faithful and dedicated. And what I think is astounding here is, is the, the, the greatest ability that we can perceive about Tychicus in this text is that he had the gift of availability. And that is the greatest gift you can have as a Christian. Be available. Be willing to be a fellow servant of Christ. And Paul calls him this. He calls him a faithful brother and a fellow servant of Jesus. He's called a diakonos. It's literally the word deacon here, right? He was probably Paul's own personal assistant in the ministry. And he sent him back to Colossae to minister in his place, to do the very thing that, you know, Paul wants to do, right? A pastor wants to be with his people. The apostle wants to be with the people in this church. He wants to be the encourager. But he says, no, I'm going to send you one who's even better than me for this occasion. Tychicus, a faithful man who is an encourager himself. There's another mention of him in Scripture. It's in Ephesians 6. Look at Ephesians 6. You can see how faithful he was here. Ephesians 6, verse 21. He writes here, So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? So these attributes stood out about this man. They stood out, and, and what he's saying is, I can rely on him, and so can you. He, he'll carry out the work that I want him to do. He'll continue on in the deliverance of this news to you, and he'll encourage you. Now, understand something. Today, I think, in our culture, we have confused the word encouragement. When we say someone's an encourager, we're really saying someone's a flatterer. You know, oh, man, you look good this morning. Oh, yeah, beautiful dress. That's not encouragement. That's flattery. That may be nice to say in social settings, but what he's talking about here is man who will come in and carry out the work that he's been commissioned to do and use that work and expound that work to those he's called to to bring hope to them and point them to the work that Christ is doing through the Apostle Paul. He is an encourager. He's speaking truth and love, and he's bringing them good news. And I think that's the desire that we all have as Christians in our church. We want to be faithfully dedicated to the work that God calls us to, that we're here and we're available. We want to be faithful to carry it out, whatever it may be. And I think that's, that's your testimony. I think that that's what you guys testify to on a regular basis to your elders. We see that. And the church needs this. The church needs faithful and available servants who are willing to labor behind the scenes and not get a lot of praise. Tychicus didn't do this to have his name up in lights. Tychicus did this to serve Christ and to work alongside his brother, Paul, in the ministry. Tychicus wasn't given great charismatic gifts, great personality, great super abilities to speak and impress people, but he was given something better. He was given the ability to bless others through his faithfulness and through his words of encouragement. Now, I think that Tychicus helps us in many ways. He, 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 he and his example remind us that faithfulness is essential to the edification of any church family. The very fact that you're here this morning is encouraging to me. Don't underestimate that. Because if you're here this morning and there's a need that arises, I can count on you. Your elders can call upon you because we know that you're committed and you're with us in the ministry. 
So your faithfulness to be here and to serve whenever you're asked, I think truly does something great. You're here, you're faithful, and you're willing to serve. What's that remind you of? Jesus, the faithful one who came to serve and not be served, right? It magnifies Christ's dedication and his sacrificial love, his faithfulness, when you are here present and willing to serve along with us in the ministry God's called us into this next year. I think we need to keep that in mind. Let me read to you Mark 10:45 and what it says about Jesus. And this is what your faithfulness should should remind you of and it's what it is magnifying in your lives. It says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you're not giving your life as a ransom for redemption of many, but you're giving your life through your willingness to serve other people, those around you, by being here. You're not coming here as a consumer. I pray you're not, anyway. I pray you're fed and nourished and edified, but I pray that there's a purpose in that. That that you're coming to be nourished so that you can go and bless others. So you can enrich their lives. You can fill them with the truth of the gospel. The life of of a Christian is one of serving, not consuming. We need to keep that in mind. And and that serving, I think, begins by just flat out being here. By your reliability, by your faithfulness, and by your willingness to step up. You know, this is probably a place where I should have wrote in my notes, you know, make a plug for Sunday school teachers here. So I'm I'm doing that now. We need more Sunday school teachers, but we need faithful, reliable, and willing ones. We need those who see the children in our church as an opportunity for mission, an opportunity for discipleship, and who will be willing to come alongside and serve those kids, watch them grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what you're here to do. I think many of you know that. I think many of you feel that. Many of you have done that. But I want to encourage you to do it even more in this next year because it magnifies Christ's faithful dedication when you do this. Now, in in 4.9, there, back in Colossians, Paul goes on to point out not just the, the faithful dedication of Tychicus, but the transformation of Onesimus. Look at verses 9 and 10. And maybe some of you don't know who Onesimus is, but he's, there's, a, there's a really great book you can read in a very short time about Onesimus. It's Philemon. It's one chapter, so I admonish you to do that today. But let me read this to you. Verse 9, and he says that Tychicus is with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. So there's some attributes here that are reflective of Tychicus in Onesimus. He's faithful and he's a beloved brother. He's pointing out the importance of Onesimus's, I think, not so much his faithfulness here, but Onesimus's transformation here. Because if you know anything about Onesimus, this is astounding to you. Because he wouldn't have been considered faithful before Christ. He was quite the opposite. This man was a reconciled sinner And he's telling them, look, I want you to receive him fully as a brother now because something's changed. Onesimus was a runaway slave who ran into God's loving hand of providence in a jail cell with the Apostle Paul. So flip over to Philemon. You'll see that. If you flip too fast, you won't see it. Verse 10. Here's the story of Onesimus and this transformation that that Paul's pointing out. This is why you should receive him. He's now faithful. He who was an unfaithful, runaway slave has now been captured 
by the love of Christ. He's a reconciled saint, not a runaway slave. And he's important to the work there at Colossae. Here's what it says about him. Verse 10. I appeal to you, my child, for my child, Onesimus. Notice the, the personal love he has. He's saying, I, I, this is the man I have endeared my heart to. He is endeared to me. He is my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, notice, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while and that he might you might have him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. There has been a transformation that's taken place in Onesimus' life. And Paul is saying, this man is, is, is no longer a, run, a runaway slave. When he ran into me in prison, he was converted by the gospel of Christ. And now he's even more than, than he was before to you because of this. He's more than a brother. He says he's our faithful and beloved brother. When I read that, when I read about Onesimus, I can't help but think about your testimonies in this church. Onesimus' transformation is, is a testimony to the power of Christ's forgiveness and redemption. His grace transformed him. It transformed Onesimus' life. It took him from being an ex-con to being a child of God, to being essential to the work of the ministry. Saints, that's, that's amazing. This man had no love for God. This man had no desire for God. But God sovereignly intervened and brought him to prison to convert him and to make him a child. That's the power of Christ's forgiveness and grace. Now, here's what I want you to remember in that. When, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, here's what we need to keep in mind. We know about their past. Paul knew about Philemon or Onesimus' past. But when a person comes to faith in Christ... Their, their past no longer defines their lives. Christ does. Who they were before Christ is meaningless in that sense. Because now they belong to Jesus. They are new creations in Christ Jesus. And we do not regard them in the flesh as who they were, but who they are in Christ now. And Paul's saying, look, you should receive this man in verse 9 of Colossians. You should receive this man as a brother in Christ who is needful and useful to me and to you as well. This is how we are to receive one another. As, as we receive converts into this church, we are to receive one another the way that, that Paul received Onesimus because we are all like Onesimus. We're all runaway slaves of sin. And the way we receive one another, I think, should testify to the joy that we have in recognizing that God's grace has changed them just like it changed me. And they are necessary for our work of ministry. And I really pray that, that that is the way we receive those who come to our church. I've seen that testimony here already. I want to see it magnified. I want to see it grow. I, I want to receive those who come into this church as brothers if they're broken 
over their sin, if they confess their guilt and need repentance and desire Christ and His atoning work and want to work with us in the work that we're called into, we want to receive that repentant brother or sister with tender affection and never with distance or suspicion. The same grace that covers your sins has covered theirs. And so we need to remember that when we think about people like Onesimus who may come into our congregation. Now go back with me to Colossians 4.10, the first part of verse 10, 10a. Here Paul points out the sympathy of Aristarchus in verse 10a. He points out the, the sympathy. He's revealing the importance of Aristarchus's sympathetic association with him. Look what it says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Well, that doesn't say a lot, does it? My fellow prisoner greets you. It doesn't sound like much. But he goes on to make it clear that this man's a fellow brother in Christ. He's saying, look, though, he is so dear to me. He's sympathetic to me. He's with me in prison. And there's a backstory to this, okay? What you have to understand is Aristarchus doesn't have to be there. He's a prisoner of love. He's given his life to serving Christ by serving the Apostle Paul. And he engaged in whatever Paul was engaged in, and he ended up in prison alongside him. And we'll go to the backstory in just a moment. But what you need to understand is Paul recognizes him as, as one of the most loving brothers imaginable. I mean, do you, do you know anybody? Are you willing to go to prison with someone so that you can minister to them in their bonds, in their chains, so you can serve them? This is what this man was doing. And he's showing us how sacrificially he'll serve the apostle and the church back at Colossae. And he's showing us, I think, how to sacrificially serve other saints in our church when they're going through difficulties. Are we willing to go alongside them, work with them in that? Aristarchus was. He did that with the apostle Paul. And Paul says basically he was refreshed by his relentless love. He says he's, he's, he's come to me to help me. He's refreshed me. And he's came along as a fellow prisoner with me. He's a fellow Jew who's now chosen to be a fellow slave of Christ with me in this imprisonment. And he's referred to in the book of Acts often. Go with me there. Acts 19 to begin with. And you'll see the backstory of why Paul is so really even thrilled, if you will, just to have one sentence to say about his fellow prisoner. At least I think he's excited to say it. He didn't have to mention him. And what I love about the, the people that are here in this text in Colossians, the people that you're not aware of, and we think, well, there's not a lot about them. They're not all that important. Well, they're important enough for God to have their names written in the book. Now, my name's not in the book. Not even any kind of rendition of my name's in the book. All right? We've got Isaiah's and we've got Hannah's. And no, I'm not even close. But here's what I know. The very fact that we see those people who are the unknowns mentioned in Scripture means that God knows the unknowns, who you are, who I am, right? There in Acts 19, beginning in verse 23, we begin to see where, where Aristarchus began his ministry alongside Paul at Ephesus. Look what it says in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance... No little disturbance concerning the way for a man called Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. He doesn't care about Artemis. He cares about his pocketbook, okay? And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, I'm not sure that Aristarchus knew what he was getting into when he went with Paul on this journey, but he certainly knew what's coming after this, and yet he continued on. This is where the journey began, but it didn't end here. He continued on in faithfulness. Go to chapter 20 of Acts beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the, for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return from Macedonia. Sopter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Sedunus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimius. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. And in five days we came there at Tro- to them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So, so he knew in chapter 20 what he was getting into as he entered into this engagement of ministry with him in chapter 20 verses 1 to 5 here he knew what was happening in verse 19 or in chapter 19 but he goes on and he goes on with him going on with Paul it was serious business nobody went with Paul if they ever started with Paul and saw what happened to him unless Christ was at work in them because Paul brought hostility everywhere he went because he preached a message that was offensive to the unbelieving people around him. But he pointed them to the only hope they had in Christ. And he knew that going with Paul, that he was going to have to count the cost and forsake all to follow Jesus and serve this messenger of Christ himself. And so we see Aristarchus' relentless love and labor, I think, illustrated even further as you go into chapter 27 of Acts and you see something, I think it's just really phenomenal. It's, I'm going to get excited about one word, so you're going to be like, what's going on, Randy? I mean, why are you so excited about one word? And the word is we. The word is we. But look what it says. Here, here we see Aristarchus's relentless love and labor for Paul in one word. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. <laughs> so the term we is important here because it is referring to Luke and Aristarchus. Both had become prisoners. And to to be in this journey, to go on this journey with Paul, they had done nothing wrong. They voluntarily laid their lives down to go with this apostle and serve him. They, they, They became prisoners or slaves to go on this voyage with Paul. And they knew it was not going to be a joyride. They knew what was coming. He was going to face trial. 
Aristarchus and Luke himself as well were prisoners of choice. They chose this life. They, they, they did it so they could care for Paul personally. Now, that's kind of convicting when we think about this. His sympathetic association with Paul, I think, reveals that he had a great understanding of the term agape. He understood brotherly love. He was a relentless minister of brotherly love. And his relentless ministry of love cost him his own personal freedom. Now, now, are we willing to accept that for ourselves? Do we want our biography to read like Aristarchus's? That, that we're, we're so in love with the church and with serving others in the body of Christ and honoring Jesus that we're, we're willing to give up our personal freedom to magnify Christ who gave up everything. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save us. Do we, do we take our ministry of brotherly love that seriously here at Sovereign Grace? I think we do. I don't know that we've been tested to that point, but I do believe I see that in the saints here at Sovereign Grace. I, I see people committed to Christ and committed to one another in this church. Sometimes we're not as committed as we probably intend to be when we start down a journey like with Paul. When we see the, the havoc and the chaos and the, this trouble that's going to come, sometimes we want to back out of this brotherly affection, this brotherly love a little bit. And, and, and I think that that's something we struggle with in the flesh. But I think we desire it. I think we want to be able to say, I'm willing to lay down my life to honor Christ by serving one another in the church by serving God's people. I think we can do this by God's grace because here's what we know as Christians. You are united to your brothers and sisters in Christ around you right now. And when they suffer, you suffer. And when they rejoice, you rejoice. And, and you do this together. You, you, you see your lives as interwoven together in the love of Christ. You're woven together in this tapestry of God's sovereign grace to bring Him praise on the earth by encouraging one another in the faith, to stand firm in the days ahead, to be committed to honoring Jesus, even if it costs you everything. We, we hear about the, the, the great men of God in the, in the, the church history class. And we're all just amazed at their boldness, their confidence, and their tenacity. And saints, they don't have any different spirit than we have. They have the same truth we have, but do we have the conviction they have? That this life is not our own. We were bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. We're here on temporary assignment to make much of Him now and for eternity. This is our calling. And we express that through brotherly love. And that is a powerful testimony to our culture today. They will see our love for one another and know we belong to Jesus. We'll stand beside each other in times of difficulty and distress and we'll commend them to the glorious grace of Christ when they suffer and we'll understand that we'll be willing to go with them in the suffering and not depart from them, but walk with them, just like Aristarchus walked with Paul. Go back to Colossians 3, Colossians 4 rather, verse 10b. I get wrapped up with Aristarchus because there's one word about him in Acts 27.1, but let me go on. Um, to the next man mentioned here. I like this because when Paul writes about Aristarchus, he, he jams in another brother there with him that's very important to illustrate Aristarchus's kind of brotherly love. And he, he, he's showing us here what brotherly love looks like in action when he mentions the next man. He mentions Mark, right? Mark. Mark is mentioned here, and the importance of Mark is here because Mark is a restored brother. He's, he's mentioning and revealing the importance of Mark's restored devotion. 
that one day had wavered, but now was brought back. Mark was a welcomed brother at this point, he says in this text. Let me read it. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him is the word receive. Receive him. Take him in. It's not just like, hey, how you doing, Mark? Come on in the house. No, it's like you and, and me, we're one in Christ. You, whatever's mine is yours. We want to serve the Lord together. Come in. You're a part of what, the work we're doing here. And, and, and Mark was, was to be that. He was to be that welcomed brother. Now, he's a welcomed brother who's been restored, which is amazing. And we see brotherly love not only, I think, in Mark's devotion to Paul, but Paul's mention of Mark. It's pretty astounding. And I think what God's doing is here, he's reminding us that God can restore broken people back into the faithfulness of ministry, back into a place that's important for others to be served by them, back where they can actually honor Christ, whom they have offended in the past. God is in the business of restoring broken saints. He restores us. He brings us back. He teaches us along the way how we should look to Christ in the midst of our failure and not to ourselves. I think that happened here. In in 4.10 there, Paul refers to Mark as, as one who should be received now because he was once broken, but now he's restored. And this is huge when you think about what happened. At one time, Mark... Mark was not welcomed by the Apostle Paul himself because Mark broke a promise to the Apostle Paul. He broke his word to Paul to go into ministry with him. But in God's providence and grace, here's what I love about this story between Paul and Mark, John Mark. In God's providence of grace, Mark's failure proved to be an asset and a necessity for both Paul and Mark. Not just for Mark's restoration, but for Paul's sanctification. Go with me to 2 Timothy. I want to show you this. 2 Timothy 4. I want to show you how radical this is. So so Mark had made a big promise to go with Paul early on in a missionary journey. And then he bailed out. Fine, rain on you. Go with Barnabas. I don't care what you do. It's kind of a... I don't know that's what he said. That just seems like that's the attitude. Though I think that Paul had justification because Mark had broken his commitment. You're not going to be faithful. You haven't learned faithfulness then I can't deal with you. Go someplace else. And what we see, though, is that that's changed here when we come to Colossians and we read what we read here in Timothy. Something has changed. God has restored a broken sinner here. There's a transformation that's taken place. And his brotherly love is now obviously being displayed through his devotion to the one he had at once offended. Look at 4, verse 11. you got to remember, you got to remember what... Second Timothy is Second Timothy is Paul's swan song. It's the last epistle that we believe that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was martyred for Christ. Every word here, as in all the text of Scripture, is inspired by God and profitable and in purposely given to bring great encouragement and conviction here. But look what he says. Paul does not neglect in his last words to commend them to Mark and Mark to them. In 4.11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Something has happened here, saints. There's been a transformation. This man's been restored and his devotion has been reestablished. And by God's grace, what's happened here is Mark and Paul both learned that one failure in their lives does not mean that they will be forsaken and they will always be rejected because of their failure in the past. Paul's saying, look, 
failure that, that you experienced in the past, Mark, doesn't determine your future. Neither does it mine. One failure here that you, you failed to, to commit to in the past doesn't mean God will never use you in the present or in the future. That failure only opened the door for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And think about how restored John Mark was after God's grace transformed his heart. He was able to be made useful to Paul personally in the last days of his life. Paul needed him. And then here's how radical his restoration was. Not only did Paul need him, but then God used him to write the gospel of Mark, Peter's gospel, if you will. So listen, church, what I want to remind you of by looking at at Mark here is, is don't let your past failures define God's future promises for you in this church. Don't always be looking back, but press on to the high call in Christ Jesus. Look forward. Don't look back at your failures. Look at what Christ has already established and promised you by his grace. And let the failures of your past keep you looking at the cross, always being reliant on Jesus' restoring power, his full forgiveness, his full restoration. God has chosen you for the ministry you're called into. You may have flopped. You may have failed. You may have fell on your face. But God says, I'm going to get you up and I'm going to make you go on for my glory and for your good and the good of others. God has chosen Mark for this purpose by sending his son to take his place. He made him a new creation and promised in that that he would make him a restored creation. And he's doing that here. Now go back to Colossians 4, verse 11. Let me read this to you. We move away from Mark, that little biography, to a little less known fella in Scripture. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, he's including Aristarchus. He's, he's putting all these men together with Jesus, who's called Justice, who were fellow Jews. And, and they're there with him, comforting him, being with him, comforts him. Their presence comforts him in his affliction and his difficulty and his trials. That's important to know. And so I think what we see here is the importance of Justice's supportive consolation, his supportive role. It, little is known about this supporter of Paul here. We don't know much about Justice, except that he comforted Paul in his ministry. Now, I would love that testimony. I would love that my testimony would be that I didn't do anything to make Paul look stupid, but I was there to comfort him. I, I, I would want my testimony to be that, that I was there to help him in his work and ministry there in Colossae and be a servant of Christ in that. I would, I would want to be that man who is a comfort to this saint. And that should be the case right now in this congregation with all of you as well. I would want my testimony as an elder, an elder is just a servant of Christ, a slave of Jesus. I would want our testimony as elders to be that we're here to comfort you in the truth. We're going to be faithful to do that, just like Justice was faithful to the Apostle Paul to be there, be available, to be present. Like I said, there's not much mentioned about him, and it's not much that we can actually draw out of this except the importance of comforters in the church. And I think that we shouldn't overlook that. You may not feel like you have a big role in this church. You may like... Think that when you come, nobody really notices. When you come, nobody really cares. When you come, nobody really has a, a way for you to, to get plugged into things. But I want you to know something. The very fact that you're here faithfully present is a comfort to others around you. They see you. 
They see you bringing your children here and knowing that moms can't hear a word the preacher's saying. And that comforts other moms who have been there in the past, knowing, look, I see faithfulness in these other women. And one day God will bring forth a fruit, a harvest from their faithfulness to their discipleship of their children. Justice reminds me of all that. He was a comfort to the Apostle Paul in his ministry. His, his ministry seems little, but it wasn't a little contribution to Paul. He mentions it in Scripture. He was a comfort to him. He was a support to him. And I want you to know that when you're here, that's what you are to others in the church. Your comfort, your support, your presence is important. Don't ever neglect. Don't let, don't let the flesh and the world deceive you into thinking that going to church is really not that important unless I can really be plugged in or serving in a big ministry or, you know, I'm so distracted because of my kids that I can't really get anything out of it. That's not the truth. God will bless your presence by giving you nourishment that you didn't even know you were getting just by the love and the affection of other Christians who shake your hands, who come to you to help you in the present and in the future because they know you. And I think that your very presence here testifies that you love those other saints and that you love Jesus above all things. And that you're here to serve him by laboring alongside us, even if you don't get kudos and praise for all the things that you do in the church. Justice didn't want to do that. He just wanted to be a comforter. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a comforter. Now, I don't know that God leaves us at just comforters. Sometimes he takes the one who wants to be just a comforter, a fly on the wall, and he turns you into someone that you didn't expect you to be. He makes you a servant. He makes you connected to other people through that comforting presence. And that's a good thing. Let's look at the sixth biography here in 12 to 13 of Colossians 4. This is about the importance of Epaphras' active intercession. This is how important he was. And the biography that we read about him is, is one of an active intercessor. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in, the, in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Well, how did he work hard for them? How did he work hard? Well, verse 12 gives us a hint. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He was an active intercessor. He was prayerfully devoted to Christ and the saints and to Paul. I think this shows us how necessary prayer is in the body of Christ to the Apostle of Paul. He asked for prayer at the beginning. Then he says, you've got a guy there who's already interceding. This is important stuff. Intercessory prayer on behalf of the saints in this church and the work we're called into is essential to our furtherance of the gospel in this community. The church will not move any further than our prayers. We must be in prayer for one another constantly. Listen, I, I pleaded with my co-elders last night. I wasn't feeling great. I said, pray for me. I want to honor Christ. They prayed. We need one another. And Epaphras is a testimony to that. He was, he was an important man in the church in other ways. He was probably the founder of this church. He was probably the one who was one of the key pastors of this church. But he doesn't get mentioned as that so much as he does as a man of prayer. He says... In verse 12, he's, he's always struggling in prayer. Now, that's a really interesting term when we think about it in the Greek and we study it out. It means he was a relentless servant of Christ who agonized in prayer to the point of exhaustion. That's what the word struggling means. To agonize to the point of exhaustion. To pray for the saints so hard that he passes out in exhaustion. 
Are we that committed to prayer in our church? We may not be, but we can be by God's grace. When we get a true understanding of what God wants for us as a church and what we are called to do as co-laborers in Christ, I think we'll understand why he prayed like he prayed, and maybe we will pray like this also. He's praying so that they may stand mature and fully assured of God's will. How many of you need that? I need that. Pray that I would be mature, I would stand firm, and I would be fully assured of God's will. In other words, I would be walking in the revealed will of God so much that any decision that came across my path, I would know, does this honor Christ? Does this serve the kingdom of God? Are you praying for others like that? Praying that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will. He says, I I see this as essential. And this man struggling in prayer to the point of exhaustion to make this a reality in his own life. He wants to be mature and fully assured of God's will. And his testimony, I think, should encourage really what we want. I think every Christian wants. We want a prayerful heart. But we have to have prayerful hands and eyes and feet as well. We have to be active in our prayers. It's, It's not enough to say, I wish I would pray more. We have to pray more. It's not, it's not brain surgery. Do it. Oh, I stole Nike's slogan. Yeah, I mean, just pray. Just pray. You, you could say you have a prayerful heart and you want a prayerful heart, but you've got to pray for a prayerful heart. Pray. Because we need active intercessors. Praying that we would all stand firm in the faith. That we would fulfill God's will in Ada. That's what we need as a church. The seventh biography there in 4.14a reveals the importance of Luke's sacrificial attention. Luke's sacrificial attention. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. He mentions him as a physician here. It's important that he does that. But he also says, this is the man, remember, who volunteered to be with me in this imprisonment. He was a sacrificial physician. He was a sacrificial servant. And I think what Luke illustrates to us is what I see illustrated in our church all over the place. He illustrates to us one who used his personal skills and abilities to personally care for others in the body of Christ. He was a physician, but he also traveled with Paul as as a co-laborer in the gospel ministry. But what he did in the gospel ministry is is really personal to Paul. He, He ministered to Paul's physical needs as a fellow prisoner... And he ministered to Paul's spiritual needs as a faithful friend. He used his skill and his friendship to serve Jesus by caring for the man that is taking forth the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is what we need to learn from and what we actually see happening in our church. Luke uses his skills and his friendship to further the gospel, and so do you. Listen, God, God has called each one of you in particular ways with particular skills, gifts, talents for his glory. Don't ever underestimate that. Don't ever demean that by thinking, well, I don't teach in the church. I don't do children's ministry in the church. I don't sing in the church. What can I do in the church? You can use your skills for the glory of God to serve the people of God. That's how you can do that. He's called you to use your skills in life, whatever they may be, to be the hands of Christ in ministry. Whether you're a carpenter, whether you're a health care provider, whether you're a student, a homemaker... A plumber, whatever it may be, even screen printers can be used in their skills to serve others in the body of Christ. Amen? All these skills and all these gifts and abilities 
are sacred to God when we offer them up in worship to Christ to benefit others for the glory of His name. Don't ever, moms, don't ever underestimate the essential necessity, the, the need of your ministry in the home. You, you are shaping the hearts and minds of the people we're going to have in the pews. And you do a far greater job at discipling them than we do. You're with them in good times and bad. And let's look at the last, the last person mentioned here in Colossians 4.14. I want to look at 4.14 with great hesitation and heartache. That's the way we should see it. It's a biography that looks good at the surface, but it begins to diminish in its integrity in the future. I want us to see, first of all, that Paul mentions everyone that affected his ministry in this closing of the letter, even the ones who hurt and disappointed him, men such as Demas. Demas would one day abandon Paul. But here, Paul reveals the possibility of Demas's self-deception. It appears that Demas is a believer at this point in his life. I think what this does is Demas here serves to remind us that it's possible to serve alongside those who love the world more than Christ. It's possible to serve alongside those for a long time who may be self-deceived. In 14b, we, we know that Paul had to learn to trust people who profess faith in Christ. He trusts in, in the redemption of, and reconciliation and restoration of Mark. But in this case, reconciliation was not going to be something that he would necessarily see in his own lifetime. What he saw in Demas further down the road was a man who retreated and deserted Christ and Paul for the love of the world. For the love of the world. 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He deserted him in his time of need. Mark was restored in his time of need. But Demas looked like he was with Paul at the beginning, but now departed at the end. Church, listen, sadly, Demases are all too common in the church. Mark 4.16 points something out that's important for us to keep in mind. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, when I read that passage and I think about Demas's desertion, my heart seriously breaks. To work alongside someone for so long and to labor with them and to see them depart. But here's what I want to remind you of. Don't forget that many biographies are filled with tragedies until you get to the last chapter. True believers may and do fall into periods of sin, but in the end, a true Christian will repent and persevere in the faith. But saints, only time and testing will reveal the truth. And, and we have hope in that because we have a Savior who doesn't depart from us when we depart from Him. He comes after us. And he gets all that He comes after by the power of His grace. 
And I pray that all those who ever attend here or leave this church will be reminded of the fact that you, you, you face a fearful thing to depart from Christ, but there's hope in returning to Christ. Look to Christ to be saved. Don't look to your failures to think that you cannot be saved. Look to the one who can redeem sinners. Let's look back at Colossians 4. I want to end here. His final words, 15 to 18. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha at the church in her house. In her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Here Paul expresses greetings finally to the whole church there at Nympha's house. And he does that, I think, very intentionally. He, he doesn't want anyone to be left out. I mentioned some of these other men and women, but uh, I don't want you to be left out. And he wants them to see that, that you are important in the work, every one of you. And that's true here. I want you to see how important the work of Christ is in your life that's being reflected in the lives of others who see it around you. Each of your individual lives in this church are affecting others in the body of Christ, whether you know it or not. Sometimes you're helping lead some who thought they were saved and weren't to salvation. And sometimes what you're simply doing is helping us in our sanctification. And I want you to know that your lives are important. And and I want you to know that your lives are testifying to the life of Christ that's at work in you. And, and you are laboring with us faithfully. And for that, we give thanks. But we want you to excel still more. Because the beauty of grace is it's abundant. And though we struggle now, God will give us greater grace in our struggles. And I want you to remember this. Because you, every one of you that are believers in Christ, you are all living letters of God's grace. And people are reading you right now. They're reading your lives. People are reading about the gospel in your life through your commitment to Christ and to one another in this church. Your employers are reading about your commitment to Christ through your faithfulness at work. Your spouse reads about your love for Christ through your patience and your pursuit of holiness in your family and your life. Your kids read about your faithfulness to Christ through your repentance and your discipleship. Your kids need to know when you sin and fall short of the glory of God and disciplining them. You need to ask for their forgiveness. You need to to disciple them in love. Your kids are reading about your faithfulness to Christ in that. Your church family reads about your love for Christ through your faithfulness and dedication to be here in the work of the ministry in Ada and wherever we may go. Now, you are living letters, but you're not infallible letters. The one we read was infallible. You and I, we're not so much. We're not infallible letters, but we have a gracious God who has placed us in a healthy church to hone us, to sanctify us, to strengthen us, so that through our labor and our love we can magnify Christ by fulfilling the ministry that he's called us into together here in Ada. That's my desire for you in this next year. I think Paul's final words to the interim, if you will, Pastor Archippus, should apply to us. And here's his final word. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I would add to that, see that you do that through this new year or until Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For you are the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And through your grace, you've called us to be the light of Christ here in Ada and wherever we may go in the next year. And I pray that you would just strengthen us, unite us, and send us out so that we may make much of Christ Jesus in the way we serve one another and serve the community around us. So that at the end of the day, when we are all dead and gone, Christ's name will remain in Ada as being praised and honored through the work of the saints at Sovereign Grace. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.